This is the Case Dot Report. Hello, everyone. Welcome to April's episode of the Case Dot Report. Orla Kelly is my name, and I'll be your host through this month's theme of geriatric EM. We have a case on one of the most commonly missed diagnoses in the department, a talk on bringing the hospital to people where they need it most, and a different discussion on the time when the care we give to patients can be the most important they and their families ever receive. Deirdre and Barry are joining me for the case today. So tie up your runners, put the milk in your tea, or settle into your commute. Let's get to it. Hey guys, how are things? Hey, we're hey, yeah. All right, so Barry, tell us, who's coming to our emergency department today? So today we have an 84-year-old lady who has come in with her daughter. Her daughter brought, brought her into the ED because she was very agitated this morning. Cool. All right, Deirdre. <laughs> uh... <laughs> That's all Did she wrote. Did you want me to add more? Or... <laughs> That's all we got. <laughs> okay, so, you know, it's a Tuesday morning. The department actually is very reasonably under control. She is put as a cat too because she is a little bit agitated in the department. And Deirdre, you're the reg on that morning and you pick her up. So what's your approach? Okay, so um, we're going to go in and uh, look at this patient. Is her daughter with her here in the department? She is, yeah. She's there beside her. Perfect. So I just want to have a quick look from the end of the bed before I go in. Just make sure that the patient is, is stable enough for me to ha- take a little bit of a history first from her and from her daughter and, and then start to assess her. Uh, so from the end of the bed, uh, what, what do I see? So she's sitting up in the bed, very restless, and mm. uh, and she's shouting. Okay, so we might just get some monitoring on her, and I'm just going to have a quick chat to her daughter to figure out what's going on. So you said her daughter said she's she's agitated um, just today, is that right? Yeah, so it was pretty off form yesterday, wasn't like herself at all, and then she called in to see her this morning, and she was just very, very off baseline, very agitated, uh, and, okay. and quite restless. So she's had a kind of an acute change. And does yeah. she have any uh, medical history that we know about? She's got high blood pressure, uh, her daughter tells you, and she's got an irregular heartbeat. Okay. And she's, according to the GP, the starting of dementia. The starting of dementia. Okay, so maybe some mild cognitive impairment there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Do, do we have a list for medications with her as well? Yeah, she is on Apixaban. She is on mm-hmm. Bezoprolol and Ramipril. Okay. And any history of trauma that we know about? Not that we know of, no. Okay. And, and nothing else in the history to point us towards clues why she might be feeling uh, a little bit off her, her baseline at the moment? Not particularly, no. Okay. So 84-year-old lady, agitated, hypertension and AFib and, and on a couple of medications, including some anticoagulation. Right. So so we might just have, have a look at her herself. So obviously with any patient, just starting from the basics, airway breathing circulation. So from an airway perspective, you said she's sitting up, she's agitated. Is she talking or speaking to us? Yeah, she's kind of speaking in short sentences. Short sentences. Okay. Is she distressed? Is her breathing distressed? Breathing is not distressed. She herself is a bit distressed. Yeah. She herself is obviously, yeah. Okay. How about that monitoring? Did we get any kind of uh, vital signs on her? Has she got SATs or respiratory rate? Yeah, her respiratory rate is 17. Her O2 SATs are 94% and that's on room air. On room air. So maybe a little bit low from from her baseline. Um, actually, we didn't check if this lady was a smoker in her history. Uh, non-smoker. Non-smoker. So maybe a little bit low there. Continuing the breathing assessment there, I just want to have a little listen to her chest. Yeah, um, that sounds good uh, clear. Good air entry there in the chest. Good air entry, bilateral chest rise. Okay. Perfect. So clear throughout and no sign of any kind of infection. No. 
perfect and in terms of her chest so from a circulation perspective moving on then did we get a heart rate on her yeah it got a little fast it's 112 okay and we said before she's in an irregular heart rhythm didn't we so does that feel irregular or irregular it does yeah it's irregular irregular so maybe she's in a little bit of a fast afib there is she maintaining her blood pressure that she is yeah uh, 145 over 78 at the moment okay so maybe even a little bit high depends what her baseline is we know she has hypertension but she might be managed with uh, medication for that so just going on from circulation perspective she's a little bit hypertensive she's going a little bit fast does her color look okay yeah it looks fine Okay. And just examining onwards then, does her heart sound okay? Is there any large murmurs? No murmurs that you can hear there, no. No murmurs. Any signs of overload? JVP okay? JVP looks okay, yeah. And her her legs are... No. Okay, perfect. And I'll just have a look at her tummy while while I'm there examining her. Is it soft? It is soft, but you notice that she is a little bit tender in the suprapubic area. All right, okay. Any renal angle tenderness there, Barry? No tenderness there, no. Okay. Grand, so that's A, B, and C run through very quickly. So what we've got so far, she's maybe a little bit hypoxic, but her chest is good. She's running a little bit fast in her heart rate, but she's maintaining her BP. And we've got a bit of tenderness in her suprapubic area. Just do a quick disability uh, assessment then. So this lady, she's sitting up, she's eyes open, I'm guessing, yeah? She is, yeah. Perfect. And what would you give her for a voice score? Um, is she shouting or confused or making... Uh, inappropriate words yeah i'd say inappropriate words okay so she's going to get a score of three there for voice yeah and um, will she follow commands at all not at the moment no okay but would she localize pain she does yeah okay perfect so we've got either for voices three m5 so she's going to be a gcs of 12 out of 15 which is possibly a little bit lower than her baseline so we've got this idea, GCS 12. We, we might just uh, see if she'll let us take a bedside glucose test. That could give us some clues about what might be going on here. Yeah, so we do that and her glucose is 9.4. All right. Okay, so a little bit high. Are her pupils equal? They are, yep. Okay, and no obvious lateralizing signs at this time? Not that you can see, no. Okay. And as you said before, she's kind of restless. She's agitated. So that's going to feed into her disability assessment as well. So, mm-hmm. all right. Just to kind of finish off, I guess the primary, the primary little examination, just finishing with exposure. Can we get a temperature on this patient? Yeah. And she's 37.1. All right. And there's no evidence of any injury. Uh, you said there's no history of trauma, but no signs that we can see that she might've had an injury. Nothing uh, at all there. Nope. Nothing like that. All right. Okay. So I guess in the context of a patient who is 84 and off her baseline in terms of cognition and in terms of being a bit more agitated and restless than usual, I'd be considering a, a diagnosis of delirium. So at this point, I might just do a rapid 4AT score, if I could, Yep. just to assess if, if delirium might be in the picture. So there's obviously four parts to this. So I, I want to assess her alertness. Yeah, and uh, she's bright and sitting up. So her score is zero for that. Okay, great. We'll do a little AMT4 test on her. Yeah, and she um, scores two on that. She isn't able to do oh, that for two you. two of that. Can we, are we able to assess her attention? No, she's, she's you'd call that untestable. She's, she's not cooperating with you there at all. So okay, two for so that she's well. going to get a two for that as well, isn't she? And mm-hmm. we know that there's been an acute change that her daughter has brought her in for. So that's going to be a four. So she's got yeah. a high 4AT score of eight. So we'd be concerned about delirium in this patient, wouldn't we? We would indeed. So what I want to do is, 
obviously in the context of a restless agitated patient i want to make sure that as much as possible we're looking after her in an area that's kind of suitable and and following universal design ideas for management of delirium by which i mean obviously a, a room that's not too cluttered kind of as calm as possible if we can have her daughter stay with her during her assessment in the ED, that would be fantastic. Obviously, COVID sometimes gets in the way of that, but family members nearby really can help to to help care for patients with delirium. Have, you know, things on the wall like a, a clock and a date uh, to, to help with orientation in the ED and, and try and minimize sort of medical equipment and wires on the patient. So we, we'll start off by, by getting her into one, an area like that if we have it in our ID, and then we can start to try and figure out maybe what's what's going on and why this patient has become become unwell all of a sudden. So uh, the mnemonic I kind of use for, for delirium, causes of delirium, would be pinch me. I, I think there's a few different ones. I don't know if, if you got a different preference, Barry. Yeah, smashed is one I, I use. That's uh, yeah. it's it, There's a really good Orchem learning module on, on uh, delirium, but smashed is the one they use there. Okay, perfect. So pinch me, I think I got from the British Geriatric Society. So with pinch me, we start with P for pain. And, and it's possible that this patient might be in a little bit of pain. We said she's got some tenderness in her, epiga- her epigastrum, suprapubic area. And she potentially has a sort of a, an infective process or something else going on that's causing her a bit of discomfort. So we want to address any pain that she might have. The eye and pinch me is for infection. And that's definitely a possibility in this patient. I mean, her glucose is a bit high. She's got some tenderness. Uh, her sats are a little bit low, so she could definitely have some infective process driving this picture. And so I'd like to get a chest x-ray and get a, an MSU to check if there's signs of UTI. Specifically for this lady, wouldn't always get it for, for every elderly patient. And I, I don't know if we have the results of that yet, Barry. Yeah, so she has two plus blood and she's got three plus leukocytes and there are nitrites present as well. Okay, so with... Neutrophils and, and blood in your urine, there's definitely a possibility that this lady's got some infection going on driving this delirium. Um, so that, that would be pretty high on my um, on my differential list. Uh, there's other things, of course, that could be causing this poor nutrition. She could be constipated. She could be dehydrated. Medication could be playing a, fa- a role and, and changes in environment can, can definitely be a factor. So all sorts of things that could cause delirium in, in patients. I think infection would be high on, on my list. And, and with that in mind, it'd be great if we could try and get some blood tests on this patient. Yeah. Uh, so that's a bit problematic, unfortunately, here. She's uh, she's very restless now and is uh, and won't let you take any blood tests from her. Mm-hmm. OK, that's that's going to be a bit of a problem. So it's important, obviously, that we do uh, as much as possible to de-escalate the situation if we can. So if we try and, you know, explain to her where she is, try and reassure her, try and explain what's happening and reorientate her as much as possible. Does that help at all? Is she is she any calmer then? So she does settle for a few minutes okay. uh, and then quickly becomes restless again. Okay. And we already have her in a kind of a quiet area and have her yeah, daughter she's... In, in to try and help her. Yeah, she's uh, in a, a quiet area of the department. Her daughter's there beside her trying to calm her down. Okay, uh, but not, that, nothing unfortunately not is working. Yeah. Okay, so if all else fails, we may need to give this lady some medication in terms of helping us to get the blood tests that we need to kind of help us manage uh, and treat her, and and help you know to prevent her her causing any harm to herself. 
so we may get to a point where we need to give this lady some some IM medication if we if we can't get IV access and blood tests, and if she's very agitated, you know, giving some IM medication may also help with with her symptoms and her anxiety in the situation. We don't have any history of of whether this lady has you know Parkinson's or any suspicion of Parkinsonism previously. No, not no suspicion like that at all. No suspicion. Okay, and I don't suppose we got an ECG on her, did we? We actually did at the very start, and she's in, um, as you said, uh, fast AFib. A fast AFib, okay. Do we have a, a QTC on that ECG? Yeah, it was 446. Okay, all right. So she's a patient who um, I think at this point might need a little bit of IM sedation. If really we've tried everything else, if we are concerned that she has an infection, that she might need uh, medication. We, we need to get blood tests. We need to help to treat her. So obviously we want to go with a very, with a low dose in an 84 year old lady. And we want to give time for each dose to work before we give any top ups. So I think the, the two options that we consider would be haloperidol and lorazepam, according to kind of national and international guidelines. So if there's any suspicion of kind of Parkinsonism or a long QT, I, I would tend towards lorazepam IM, but haloperidol is, is a useful antipsychotic that we can use um, in this, these situations also. So if we maybe give this patient 0.5 milligrams IM lorazepam and give it a bit of time to work, it's going to take kind of 20, 30 minutes to take a full effect. Does that, does that help at all with the situation? Yeah, that's brilliant. She's nice and relaxed now. Um, okay. When you come to see her about 40 minutes later, much Good. calmer. And obviously, it's going to be really important to just monitor her SATs after giving her sedation and monitor her sedation level. Uh, yeah. As I said, we want to go really slowly and gently and not over-sedate this patient. That could be um, extremely detrimental. So that's great that she's she's relaxed and we're able to get IV access at that point, are we? Yep. Okay. So let's send off bloods from, from her then. Uh, we're going to get a, a blood gas off, check her lactate and, and other numbers there. Obviously do a full blood count, uh, UNE, CRP, um, check her liver function, uh, check if there's anything else going on that could be causing or driving this delirium. And I think now that we've got IV access, you know, if there's further suggestion of infection and we do suspect a UTI in this patient, she's probably going to need IV antibiotics to treat that UTI as long as maybe giving her further pain relief if we feel that she might still be in pain and she may need a little bit of fluid rehydration, rehydration if she's um, looking a little bit dehydrated. How, how's that going there, Rari? Is that helping? Yeah, her? so she looks much better now. Uh, you come and see her about a couple of hours later. She's had a bit of a hydration. She's had her antibiotics. Her daughter's much happier with her, much more settled. Okay, great. Brilliant. So I think this patient's going to need admission for further management, uh, for further kind of workup, just to make sure there's no other causes of her um, delirium. She should have a medication review and we'll probably need an um, MDT input into uh, managing her care. There's definitely no role on uh, sending this lady home with PO nitrofurantone. time. I'd, I'd be very reluctant to be honest, Orla. Um, <laughs> so I think sometimes we underestimate delirium, uh, but it's it's a medical emergency. It should be treated as such. And I, I think in the context of this patient who's acutely agitated and showing signs of infection, I, I feel like probably she's someone who's going to need some inpatient management for a little while. Okay. And then in terms of further investigation, so we, we managed to get a urine, um, a chest x-ray and, and blood tests. Is there any role for any other radiology in this case? Would you be thinking of a CT brain there? Oh, yeah, I just, you know, just popped into my head. 
<laughs> popped into your head. So, uh, you know, there, there's a few things in her history. So she is obviously on anticoagulation and in patients who are on anticoagulation, if there's a suspicion of trauma, obviously that would be a, a reason to do a CT brain. Or if there was kind of focal neurological symptoms, that'd be another reason. I, I don't think rushing in and doing a CT brain straight off the bat in every patient who presents with delirium is indicated, but it might be something that you bear in mind if you're not coming up with a reason for, for someone's delirium presentation or, you know, if, if you're not showing improvement with, with treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So um, thankfully, due to increasing flow during these COVID times, this patient uh, was admitted into a medical ward very quickly after after referral, which was fantastic. And, you know, but in, in so doing, helped her, her morbidity and mortality from that. So well done, everybody. Barry, do you want to talk us a little bit through delirium? Of course. Yeah. So delirium. By the DSM-5 criteria uh, would be an acute confusional state and this is characterized by a disturbance in your attention and awareness. It can be acute and onset fluctuation throughout the day. You need a disturbance of at least one of memory, orientation, language, perception and a visual spatial ability and these disturbances can't be otherwise explained by another neurocognitive disorder and there must as well be evidence that that these disturbances are a direct physiological consequence of another medical condition. So in our case here, it was an infection, could be intoxication, could be withdrawal. So really the key features of of delirium that you want to remember. So you need a recent onset of fluctuating awareness, you need impairment of memory and attention, and you need disorganized thinking. And the reason we care so much about delirium is it's really, really common and it's particularly common in hospital. And your prevalence in uh, in older adults in the hospital will be anywhere from 11 to 42%. And these patients, unfortunately, will experience longer stays in the hospital. They have a higher risk of complica- complications, both of it, both in the medical and surgical settings. And they have a higher mortality as well. And that's not just in their in-hospital stay, but up to six months after discharge as well. So that's why we care so much about delirium. And so obviously, if it's this, you know, quite severe change in disturbance or change in behavior and with, you know, disturbance of your memory, rotation, language and perception, and we care a lot about it. We're obviously really good at picking it up, right? Not as good as we should be <laughs> or not as good as we like to think, I think. So it's really important that we're, that we're able to identify it. And there, there are three subtypes that you need to look out for. So there's a hyperactive, hypoactive and a mixed. Uh, so the hyperactive patient, uh, these are patients who have heightened arousal, they're restless, they're wandering around. This, these patients sometimes can be quite aggressive. The hypoactive patients, on the other hand, would have decreased alertness. They might have kind of slow speech or sparse speech. They could be lethargic and apathetic. And these are the patients that are that are missed most often. You know, like, you know, little Mary sitting in the corner who's not really doing very much and staring into space. Uh, she's probably fine but we need to get away from that type of thinking. Uh, and then your mixed subtype obviously is going to be a combination of the of hyper and hypoactive. And there is evidence to suggest that the hypoactive delirium patients have a, have a worse illness or a more severe illness. And if we miss this more often, that has obviously worse consequences for the patient. Um, so the history really is the most important thing. And clearly your, your patient isn't always going to be able to give you much of a history. So this is where you need to be involving the family members. So I thought it was, it's great to keep family members in the department. I know it's really difficult and controversial at the moment because we're trying to reduce the amount of people in the department. But for these patients, it's really important. And you might need to even speak to the the patient's carers or the GP just to gain a bit more collateral. And that's understanding things like the time of onset. So we had a pretty clear onset in this case. It was the day before arrival to the hospital. You need to know their, their baseline cognition, what they're like normally at home, what they can do 
and uh, and get a good drug history as we did. Okay, so Deirdre then, how, you know, you, you approach this patient really well in the case. What's the general approach to a patient with delirium? Well, I think as I was kind of mentioning, it's it's really important to be aware of the environment uh, for these patients. So straight off the bat, the ED environment is so highly stimulating. Um, it's just not a great place for patients with delirium to be. Um, we know that that has negative impacts um, on, on their care. So as much as possible, we want to be looking after these patients in a in a quiet space. We want to kind of minimize monitoring as much as possible. You know, you kind of see this picture of the patient that can be kind of tethered to the bed with, you know, cardiac monitoring and SATs monitoring, and then they get catheterized. And uh, as much as we can limit that sort of intervention, um, obviously safely, that's ideal. As Barry mentioned, having a carer or a family member nearby that the patient knows can help with their orientation and help to keep them um, calm and, and comfortable. Having kind of signs on the wall that alert them to where they are, to what's going on, to what day it is, can really help with their orientation. And, and minimizing the clutter in the room can just stop them getting um, too stressed as well. And so that's always a big priority for me. Uh, I think, you know, talking to the patient directly is really important as well as talking to their family members. So involving them in the conversation, I know, you know, that they're agitated and restless and it might not always be the easiest thing to talk to patients, but, you know, it's it's their care that is your priority at the end of the day. And you need to, to talk to them directly and, and try and do what you can to calm them down. To, to explain to them what's going on, to help to reorientate them and do everything that we can do before resorting to kind of pharmacological sedation. Uh, they can be really challenging cases, but I, I think if we, you know, follow those basic ideas, it, it can definitely make your life a lot easier. Mm. And in terms of then of screening for, for delirium in the emergency department, so um, I think depending where you read, percentages can change, but, you know, there, there's, there's stats out there that says that in the ED we miss between kind of 25 to 70% of, of um, patients presenting with delirium. The 4AT is the one that is probably most commonly used in Ireland. Do you guys routinely do that on every patient over a certain age group that present to your department or um, are you prompted to do that or how does it work where you guys are? We're really lucky in my department that um, we've got a fantastic uh, frailty intervention team that are really passionate about this. So it's something that they have been working hard to bring in at the front door um, in terms of patients, I think over 65, that, that we do a 4AT screen on all patients. So it is something that's really being driven at a departmental level with us. And uh, it's a really useful screening tool. It takes less than 10 minutes. It's very easy to apply um, and it just you know, raises the question of delirium in everyone's head and, and gets it to the forefront of, of people's thinking when they're when we're managing patients in ED. So I think it's really important to be to be doing it as as much as possible when it's, you know, appropriate patient populations. Mm. All right. Yeah. And my, and my yeah, in my department as well, we've uh, we've a, a clinical frailty team who uh, are awesomely named the Jedi team um, <laughs> and <laughs> for uh, for World Delirium Day. The other week we had uh, we did a little quiz set up and a little raffle draw, um, so that everyone in the department now knows what a, what a four eighty score is. And yeah, from from my own experience, I know anyone over the age of sixty five, but definitely anyone over the age of seventy, I'll do a four eighty score on them. What does Jedi stand for, Barry? Geriatric Emergency Department Intervention Team. That's amazing. I think I need to double check. That. I'm gonna have to go and have a chat with our fit team now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I need to rethink some things. <laughs> 
Okay, so pretty universal agreement that um, that there should be, you know, the screening tool in place. Um, there's different scoring systems, whatever one is, is used in your in your kind of locale. The 4AT one is, is, is the one that's on the, the HSE Early Identification and Initial Management of Delirium in the Emergency Department document. So it'd be the one that I suppose that I'd be most familiar with. And exactly like you guys said, it's very, very quick and easy to do. And particularly important in, in those cases of hypoactive delirium that it's, it's not as obvious. And really, you need to be thinking about yourself that if an, an elderly patient is in the department for hours and hours and, you know, isn't getting a little bit restless and asking what's going on and what's taking so long, um, then actually there, there might be something going on underneath. We've done our screening. So then in terms of investigations and, you know, kind of mnemonics for, for you know, the possible causes of, of delirium. Barry, can you talk us through a bit of that? Yeah. So I mentioned smashed earlier. So these are your, so sepsis obviously is, is a big one. So we're talking about infection there uh, and your substrates. So hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia and your thymine deficiencies come in there. Um, stands for meningitis and other CNS infections, um, but it could also be your mental illness or functional psychoses. A is for alcohol intoxication or withdrawal. The second S is for seizures or stimulants. So not I don't know very many 70-year-olds that take amphetamines, but here we're talking about anticholinergics or hallucinogens. H stands for hyperthyroidism, hyperthermia, hypercarbia. Uh, it could also stand for hypothyroidism, hypothermia, hypoxia, and hypotension. Your E is for electrolytes, so your hyper, hyper and hyponatremia, hypercalcemia. And uh, E also stands for encephalopathy there. And the D is drugs of any kind. And then Deirdre mentioned uh, Pinch Me, which I think she went through uh, really well in the case as well. I am. Um, I particularly like the one I watch Death just because it has such a cheery <laughs> ringtone to it. Um, and but also mainly like kind of the, the the first bit of kind of I watch infection, withdrawal, acute metabolic um, traumatic injury, CNS lesion, hypoxia kind of catches the the big ones uh, early on. But exactly whatever, whatever you're used to using. I have a I have a jerry's spr roommate who particularly loves telling people do you know what the what the mnemonic for delirium is it's delirium so there's um there's one that is just delirium as well which which she really likes <laughs> so as long as you're using one i guess i don't really mind which one it is and then investigations do we throw the book at these patients ct pan scan or what do we do oh pan scan straight off the bat yeah absolutely <laughs> please don't <laughs> This, this is where I pitch in. Uh, so yeah, the CT brain really is not a routine delirium investigation. It's only indicated if you've got confusion after a fall or trauma, if there's focal neurological signs, or if you've got evidence of raised intracranial pressure. And the same advice then goes to lumbar puncture. So I know I did mention CNS infections as a potential cause, but really please don't subject your delirious older patient to uh, a lumbar puncture unless it's absolutely indicated. It's really painful uh, for like, you know, a 20 year old, let alone a, an older sick pe- person. And uh, everyone, obviously everyone over the age of 70 gets a, a urine dipstick in the emergency department, right? At the front yeah, that's with, a, with their um, pants can. <laughs> COVID really has ruined the D-timer thing, hasn't it? It's just everybody. I don't know. I kind of think D-timer ruined itself all by itself. uh, Oh, the shade on the (laughs) D-timer. It's just trying to help. Um, 
I, I wouldn't be rushing to do MSUs on every single patient over the age of 65 or whatever you're having yourself. I, I think these should be reserved for patients where you have a suspicion of infection. So, you know, lower urinary tract symptoms or, you know, something along those lines where, you know, there's a kind of classic foul smelling urine uh, plus delirium may, may also be, you know, an indication. But a lot of older patients will have leukocytes in their urine. And I think we, we have a tendency to overtreat uh, these urine results. Uh, unnecessarily. Yeah. And I think you also have to kind of the even younger, very able-bodied patients, when you ask them for a midstream urine, you kind of wouldn't be sure that it's a true midstream and to get it from a, a patient that may or may not be continent, but, you know, is confused, is challenging. So urine that's been kind of collected from a pad or um, the middle of a commode or, you know, or a, a urine bottle um, or one of those cardboard things um, isn't... <laughs> wouldn't necessarily be coming from a sterile container and you know and isn't 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 as as kind of a high yield as, as an investigation as as a, a a proper midstream and the levels of asymptomatic bacteria obviously increase as you grow older and particularly if patients are coming from nursing homes they can have very very high incidence of asymptomatic bacteria so not something to be done on on all patients uh elderly or otherwise really but if you are searching for something and it answers a clinical question then absolutely cool and so management then Barry things to do things to avoid so things to avoid uh, would definitely be urinary catheter try and avoid constipation if at all you can constipation is itself a cause of delirium try and avoid the the anticholinergic drugs as well so these are your things that you'll often see patients on like oxybutynin or uh, tovias which is uh, your fesoteridine so try to avoid them any kind of unnecessary movement around the place so either changing where the trolley is in the department or moving from war to war, try and uh, reduce that as much as you can. Great. So I think uh, Deirdre did a great job of implementing the kind of non-pharmacological measures that we can do. So things like having the appropriate lighting level for the time of the day, having regular and repeated reorientation, uh, even some, something simple like making sure the patient has their glasses or their hearing aid if they use them, um, making sure family members can visit them or can be beside them. Analgesia is a massive massive part of treating delirium if, if you need it dehydration as well try and prevent that at all costs and uh, as you said yeah reducing any kind of monitoring so any kind of irritation or if unexpected loud noises so like an infusion pump alarming um, which obviously is going to be challenging again in most tds which are usually barely contained chaos most of the time and then your treatment of your underlying condition obviously is the mo- is the the real most important thing here so uh, correcting your electrolyte imbalances treating your infection uh, you know giving your chlordiazepoxide for alcohol withdrawal and taking away any medications that might be the the precipitating cause so in our case we had a hyperactive delirium that despite our non-pharmacological measures had to um, be given some sedation Georgia, can you talk us through the the approach to sedation in these patients yeah, so I suppose uh, straight off the bat, it's really important to say that I'm really reluctant to to do this, and I, you know, we only do it when it's necessary. So, only using pharmacological um, methods when when all else has kind of failed. Uh, so, if you have to give someone IM sedation, as I was saying, you kind of keep it low dose and you know, try and try and keep it to a minimum, and and you have to monitor the response of your dose, and that can take a little while to kick in, um, you know, up to about thirty minutes, depending on what medication you use. So I, I think the national guidelines would suggest uh, that you consider something like lorazepam um, or, you know, risperidone and haloperidol are the other ones that are that are in the mix. 
if you're giving them, try and give them orally first. So if at all possible, give oral as, as first line if you can persuade the patient to take it. And this is where you might need to enlist the help of family members or, or that to, to try and um, encourage them to take the oral sedation if they will. I am as a last resort and go very, very low and just be really mindful of uh, your max doses. So um, lorazepam starting dose, maybe 0.5 milligrams to maybe one milligram and, and see how that works uh, before going in with anything else. Um, haloperidol similarly go very low dose. As I was saying in the case, it's really important to be mindful of the extra pyramidal side effects of haloperidol. So it's something that we're never ever going to give to someone who's got a history of Parkinsonism, Lewy body dementia, anything along those lines, because that can absolutely, uh, you know, just destroy them really. Uh, it can make them very unwell and, and make their recovery extremely slow. Uh, so it's really, really important to be mindful of that and to take a clear history um, just to try and rule that out before you give something like haloperidol. Also, uh, before giving it, it's ideal to get an ECG and check the, the QTC. You can cause QT prolongation with these medications and you need to be mindful of that, that you're not going to um, trigger an arrhythmia in these patients by giving them these meds. And so delirium then, is this something that we would be willing to send them home on oral antibiotics with a bit of a GP follow-up in a week? Or is it a mandatory admission or how do we approach that? Barry. Barry. <laughs> 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 yeah yeah from my point of view if i identify a delirium that person is 100 percent going to stay in hospital so that's a slam dunk referral from where i'm coming from as as we said earlier delirium is a, med- a medical emergency we need to treat it as such and then how do you marry the the two uh, kind of trains of thought which is you know delirium is a medical emergency it is brain failure it must um we must treat it and it requires a hospital admission with the you know with also the same idea that unusual environments are are bad for patients um orientation and you run the risk of developing a delirium as an inpatient god that's a good question <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> barry's mind just yeah exploded. it's really difficult isn't it? <laughs> it it is really difficult i mean ultimately we know that the mortality from from delirium is quite high so I think we have to just err on the side of caution and, you know, do, as well as treating our underlying underlying causes, we need to, as, as much as possible, use your non-pharmacological measures to make sure that the patient is regularly reorientated, that they have family members that can visit them and to have a, like, you know, a comprehensive care package in the, in the, in the hospital in place. Yeah, I think we have to be cognizant to the fact that, like, you know, there obviously is limited resources in the community as well. So it's usually really important to get a, a full MDT input and a full comprehensive geriatric, geriatric assessment for these patients, um, you know, when we can. So, uh, you know, when it's suitable to do so. Um, and, and I think those facilities aren't available in the community. Like if if there was a way of having people cared for safely in their own homes with full, you know, nursing support and an MDT assessment, that'd be amazing. But I think just it's it's not something that's realistic. So unfortunately, we end up bringing them into a hospital environment, which isn't ideal, but it it just means that they have access to all those supports that they need for the, you know, and, and the proper management in, in terms of, um, you know, physio, OT, uh, pharmacology, all, all that kind of care. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much, Deirdre and Barrett, for, for chatting to us. This obviously ties in very nicely with the recent World Delirium Awareness 
day slash week slash month in March. So thanks for joining us and for all your work on this. And I hope everyone has enjoyed listening to it. Thanks, Art. Thanks, guys. Our adult in the room is Dr. Vinnie Ramia. He's a consultant in the Mater Misericordia Hospital, Dublin. Thanks a million for giving me the opportunity, I suppose, to have a chat about this case. First, not wanting to deplore most the situation, but I'm super impressed with what you guys are doing on this podcast. Mo et al, excellent work, and uh, it really puts me to shame when I look back at my uh, SVR training uh, that uh, how essentially lazy it was. But, so great work, guys. Keep it up. And um, yeah, I'm delighted to talk about this topic because, yeah, going back to uh, some training and even not that long ago, a couple of years ago, I remember remember that so I used to run a sort of mock OSCE course for the MR Chem for Chem I suppose at that time and this was one of the stations that I remember putting on so how to assess a patient with delirium and I am ashamed to say that uh, lots of people out there they probably remember this one that we really didn't do very well in uh, our assessment of of patients with delirium and what used to shock me continually was the amount of people who could never really uh, say that this is a person who has delirium. So I'm absolutely delighted to hear that um, people are talking about delirium a lot more. There's significant awareness around uh, the whole concept of delirium from increased uh, use of frail intervention therapy teams, as well as the uh, World Delirium Awareness Day. Like These are all excellent things. And, and to promote the uh, recognition, diagnosis, management of delirium, all, all super impressive. I'll, I'll go back a bit to the uh, to the history of this case because it's interesting. And this is this is the typical history, I suppose. It's, you know, an 84-year-old sort of confused for the past 24 hours and uh, I think has a case uh, that was agitated and, and restless and, and came in with, uh, a lady came in with her daughter. The history is key and not just a cliche, but really, it really is. And Deirdre did an excellent job of, of taking history from both the lady, the daughter and, and uh, getting other collateral. But really, I think it's an opportunity just to don't accept things at face value. Do dig a little deeper, you know, with with, with the history. So if someone says they're, you know, confused, well, you know, dig, scratch a little further. So what do they mean by that? What, why, uh, why do you say that? What makes you say that the person is confused? Because it can really vary in how, uh, in how one person is confused to somebody else from someone who gets up and wanders at night and leaves the house to maybe just someone who's a little bit more forgetful, can't do the crossword uh, that they would normally be able to easily do. So yeah, do, do an, uh, interrogate a little bit further. Also, always ask about sort of falls. Has this person fallen recently? So again, inquiring about trauma, inquiring about any change in medications, drugs, any recent sort of GP visits, hospitalizations or attendances. So anything that, you know, that could potentially medications change or something in, in that a person's past medical history could have changed certainly any significant recent illnesses uh, is really 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 important also uh, use as much information as we have so go and interrogate uh, the patient information system that's available in your hospital look back through all records charts letters etc whatever it might have to suggest uh, what could be the underlying cause especially if someone's had delirium before or if you know there's a history of uh, cognitive impairment uh, any evidence of previous MMSEs or MOCA 
initiatives that might have been done and that's all really helpful so yeah Deirdre did a nice job of approaching the patient but kind of here's what I sort of do I'm not saying it's the right way but it's just what I do I kind of go in with the classic hello my name is and always direct it to the patient because you really get lots of, uh, of information I usually ask them so yeah my name is and then what's your name ask them see if they will respond to you what's their response so do they totally ignore you or are they able to answer with their appropriate response and usually if there's someone in the room rather than ask the person to introduce themselves ask the patient herself who's with you today so again you'll know what's their cognitive status like do they know who this person is with them today and can you, they recant that back to you you'll get loads out of that you'll be able to know firstly can they hear you which is one significant barrier to taking a history are they able to do that pick their side which is best when you're taking that history uh, do they have hearing aids if they don't get them and make sure that's uh, that's not a major issue for you or a barrier to taking a history you'll also know like can the person see you you know Again, I bluntly ask them, you know, can you see me okay? There's a one side that's better than the other. You know, macular degeneration, really common as well. So making it as easy as possible for the patient to give you the story. And then ask them, you know, you know, what brought you in? How are you today? Do ask about pain. Are you in any pain? And go through the systems, headache, chest pain, etc. Also ask about sort of further down, ask about, you know, has anything strange happened, anything different or unusual? So what you're trying to get is elicit, is there any suggestion of any auditory or visual hallucinations that may be a part of this delirium? Because they can be, sometimes patients are reluctant to talk about those things. You might uncover some sort of paranoid thoughts, fearful thoughts, anxieties, and that's pretty common. But, you know, 30 to 50% of patients with delirium will have some element like that but they won't necessarily be obliging to uh, to give that history ask about you know are they are you eating okay sleeping okay ask about bowel and bladder function and importantly has this happened before yeah i usually a collateral with a family or care you'll be able to get that because yeah obviously a significant risk factor for delirium is previous delirium uh, and that's why you want to elicit that earlier on when you're doing the exam as Jira just said yeah focus on priorities abcs you know is this patient critically well uh, or yeah do you have time to do a thorough physical examination and yeah it's a kind of top to toe exam um what i would suggest apart from doing the basics using our stethoscopes is this group can be difficult to examine as in they may not like you doing an awful lot and as well as that you know so, uh, signs aren't always going to be easy to elicit so i can't go on a podcast uh, uh, without mentioning the u word ultrasound so uh, listen use your ultrasound to help you in these sort of cases sometimes they can pick up things that you know the stethoscope or physical exam just won't do so look at the lungs look at the heart on a tummy look at the gallbladder a calculus cholecystitis picked up a certainly a couple of those cases and definitely certainly in this case look at the bladder is the patient able to adequately empty their bladder or are they really really constipated and having bladder outflow obstruction as a result of that so important things to to elicit on the history that i think will be helpful i think barry was talking about investigations and said yeah don't throw the book at them I, again I'm, I'm a fan of radiology i'm a fan of imaging uh, especially in this group because you know radiation is not harmful in this group you're not going to do someone harm and you could potentially pick up some uh, important causes of delirium a head scan certainly the anticoagulated patient i would have a low threshold of of scanning them you may not get that history of a fall uh, and may not be apparent uh, immediately and so you don't want to miss a subdural or, or intracranial bleed especially with someone on anticoagulation where you can hopefully try and reverse it and reverse some potentially long-term cognitive impairment as a result of brain injury 
even stuff like a PFA, goodness to how we've put that down over the years, but actually it's something that we're, we're starting to a little bit more and a little bit more acceptance of in the patient with delirium who you may not be able to get a good history of constipation. Actually seeing a PFA, which is extremely fecal loaded, might prompt you to go and do a digital rectal examination as well and treat that as pro- appropriately. So yeah, Deirdre moved on. This patient I, I think Deirdre did the right thing in that this patient looked like there was inevitably going to need to be sedated to really manage the case and look after them as best as possible. And it was tricky because, uh, unfortunately, there's not loads of evidence that using uh, sedative drugs for these type of patients with delirium actually is all that helpful. But if you're going to do it to help and just try and manage the patient to facilitate investigation and figure out what's wrong with them, use the basic principles. Start low, go slow, and keep it simple so that know the drug that you're going to use. So know whatever dose lorazepam it might be that you're going to use. Again, as Deirdre said, use a PO dose. Always try and encourage oral medications rather than the IM route and avoiding uh, typical antipsychotics in Parkinson's patients and Lewy body dementia. The reason being so that those type of drugs will block dopamine and will ex- exacerbate their underlying Parkinsonism, cause extraparental side effects. So try to avoid those in those in those groups of patients. The QTC is is important not just for the drugs that you're going to give them to try and uh, sedate the patient, but also for future drugs you're going to potentially give them. Like if they're feeling nauseated, are you going to use something like Andantantron later on, which will potentially can prolong QTC as well. So do think about that as well, interaction between drugs. When you sedate somebody, you need to monitor them closely. And what I always try and encourage people to do is to let everybody know what drugs they've prescribed. So to write those drugs that will whoever you're handing this patient over to be it the medical team on call that you've uh, that you prescribe them so prescribe them in a drug chart uh, or cardex whatever you might have the intramuscular drugs yeah avoid them lots of reasons but mainly because it's painful and a lot of this group uh, of frail older patients have significantly lower uh, muscle mass and absorption is variable so uh, they may not act like you expect them to act and potentially can be harmful in that regard i've recently use intranasal medications such as intranasal midazolam which patients have tolerated pretty well i suppose it's harder to titrate that dose but i'm sure there's going to be future studies on intranasal route for uh, for sedation in in patients with delirium and i suppose then like all conditions you have to do something once you diagnose it you have to intervene so thinking about that what are you going to do now that you diagnose someone with delirium so obviously we've felt that they need some sedation that's something you've done but the other steps so if you can avoid that you might think of de-escalation so using family members keeping family members or carers in the room with the patient one nice intervention that uh, I see a lot of uh, other departments and ourselves using are twiddle if you haven't seen these, uh, there's a, a website, I think it's twiddlemuffs.com or, uh, that, that you can look up and uh, uh, they're great at reducing that irritability, restlessness that uh, this group can sometimes suffer from, the, uh, certainly the hyperactive delirium patients. And uh, if you knit or know a knitting group, you'll really get good response if you ask them to uh, to make these for you. Just remember, just clear it with your uh, infection 
infection uh, control before you uh, before you start giving them out to your patients. Usually they uh, they will be single use, and especially this time, it's uh, really important to just make sure that uh, they're okay with it. Other interventions you can do are actually just doing the basics, making sure they get fed, making sure that's a priority that they don't get miss out on meals coming around, saying it to the nurse they're looking at who's looking after them. Make sure they get fed, make sure they get hydrated. So you might need to put some fluids or ensure that they have some fluids nearby. Make the environment as as conducive to sleep uh, as possible. So that what does that mean? So that means quiet. It usually means making sure that they have appropriate lighting, uh, allowing sort of diurnal variation of lighting. And there's a lot, again, adaptations that can be done in, in departments and wards to facilitate that. Think about always involving expert help. So again, our frailty teams have been a revelation in, in managing these patients in our departments, getting those people involved early and helping us to manage them. Obviously, treat the underlying cause. And uh, I suppose it's, it's one of those things, it's trying to get this patient out of the ED early. Like unless you're really, really set up in your emergency department with specialist rooms to facilitate patients with delirium, most of us recognize that actually the best place for them, for this group, is not in the in the emergency department, sort of high stimulus environment. But if you are going to do that, they need to go to an appropriate place. So ideally, somewhere like a specialist geriatric ward, uh, where they will have specific delirium beds or ideally should have. So other things we can do, yeah, making sure that pain is managed, figuring out what's the cause of the pain, and then managing that appropriately. Even simple things like paracetamol, other nice things like blocks, certainly if they've had trauma, uh, that, that tend to cause less delirium maybe than other medications, opiates, etc. Going back a little bit and just having an, an overview look at delirium, uh, I know all of you were really uh, stressing how important delirium is and how serious a condition it is and uh, stressing that something that really isn't something we want to miss in the emergency department. Essentially, as uh, I think somebody mentioned, it's, a, it's an acute acute brain injury. So if you think of like an acute organ failure, acute brain injury, kidney injury, uh, and off, but oftentimes it's kind of a, a decompensated sort of brain uh, failure, isn't it? So patients with a, a cognitive impairment or dementia who have high risk of developing delirium, that's the kind of situation where they may decompensate from a small insult, be, be what it may. But again, this is a serious problem because it has significant uh, mortality up to one month in patient mortality of 10%, six months at 20%. You know, that's the same as your STEMIs, sepsis, uh, strokes, hip fractures, all these time-dependent conditions that we look after, but yet hasn't really got the recognition over the years, but hopefully we can put that right. Uh, and delirium is common, unfortunately. It affects about 10% of our over 65s in the emergency department. Uh, we recently did a point prevalence study in our department uh, and again over a 24-hour period that's exactly what we saw 10% of our patients um, potentially had had delirium as in with a 4-HT greater than 4 and it affects 30% of our older medical inpatients so once they get admitted that they know that grows exponentially unfortunately uh, historically, we're pretty bad at picking this up. Uh, again, we ran an audit a couple of years ago where we 
looked at all the patients who ultimately were diagnosed with delirium on discharge and found that unfortunately only 30% of those cases were diagnosed in the ED. So yeah, not really good. And that isn't good for the patient. The longer it takes for us to diagnose delirium, the less likely they're going to get the hopefully positive interventions that we think are necessary and the more likely that they're going to suffer as a result. And the 4AT is easy. We ran a feasibility study about two or three years ago showing that this can be done in under two minutes, usually at triage. And what are the uh, what are the issues again with delirium is that it leads to complications predominantly related to increased length of stay of patients in hospital and the longer patient stays in the increased likelihood that they're going to have some sort of complication along their way and ultimately as well as mortality it has morbidity one of the big things that we tend not to think about is the increased likelihood that this patient won't be able to return to independent living because of this episode of delirium. And that's massive for older patients. If the if you were to ask most older patients who are having to come to eat in an emergency department, what do they fear the most? They fear not going home. And the fact that they potentially may end up in a nursing home is a significant worry for that patient and oftentimes why they may not attend. So recognizing this early, calling it what it is and managing it appropriately is really, really important. So tell the team that you're referring, I am referring you a case of delirium so that people use the word and are familiar with the word and then know what to do about it. And once you diagnose it, as I said, let people know, not just to say the team you're referring to, let your nurse in charge know because ideally this patient should be out of the ED in less than six hours in a specialist geriatric ward. That would be the best process. Uh, So try and advocate for your patient, not only telling uh, staff and bed management, but also ensuring those processes are there in your hospital. Getting back a bit to delirium and and the causes of delirium, it's kind of tricky delirium. As I say, the differential, why we have so many different mnemonics is is complicated and actually it's actually more than that it's complex because it's very rarely just one single problem that's led to this episode of delirium it's usually multifactorial lots of different things interacting with each other and then the patient has decompensated and ultimately end up having a delirium so the patient might have a simple fall and need to take painkillers maybe an opiate develop gi upset end up constipated and dehydrated. So there's multiple reasons there why the patient has delirium. And then similarly, we need to think about if how we're going to manage that patient, we need to think about addressing all of those issues. Stop unnecessary meds, managing pain, all those kind of things. So it's, it's not exactly straightforward. So that when you think about potentially sending this patient home, that's not always a good idea. Certainly when you see this patient for the first time over a relatively short period of time in the emergency department, it's really hard to to figure out all the exact pieces that are going on that causes this patient's delirium. Hence why we have teams like a fit team because they can look at that holistic picture and help us put all those pieces together to actually figure out what's going on. But that usually takes a little bit of time. So what are the priorities, I think, about delirium? What things do we need to do? I suppose recognition is key. So yeah, introducing something like a 4AT in your department for all patients over the age of 65, it's a pretty high yield tool. 
easy to do. So just get cracking and do it. So once you do that, you need to identify and treat the precipitating causes. So it's usually causes. So treating all those things, give antibiotics, give fluids, figure out what the other issues are. You need to optimize the conditions for recovery. So it's all very well and good that you prescribe antibiotics, but you need to ensure you allow that patient get better. You know, so make sure that they get their food, get their sleep, stay hydrated. As well as that, you need to prevent and manage sort of complications. And you can imagine that when you're delirious, you, you can lead to a lot of complications. If you're fluctuating level of consciousness, um, aspiration is a common issue that can happen. Uh, you maybe can't take your regular medications and uh, other underlying comorbidities can be precipitated. You'll have some malnourishment if not eating very well. And so your immune function is reduced and potentially leading to iatrogenic type sepsis. Uh, you're more likely to fall. And if you're not up and about, uh, decondition overall. Other things we need to do is we need to try and reduce the distress with four patients. So oftentimes it's about explaining as best we can to patients in those hopefully sometimes moment of clarity what exactly is going on. And then communication with carers is a really, really important thing. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but letting them know what's going on uh, is, is important. And the other thing we think about as well is not just sort of managing delirium in, in, in patients who we've diagnosed delirium with, is also as well trying to prevent delirium in our other high-risk patients who attend the emergency department. So these are commonly frail older patients over the age of 65, especially those who have some underlying cognitive dysfunction, who have had previous delirium, who may have significant sort of cardiac, renal, liver disease. Unfortunately, females are more prone to developing delirium. And so think about those high-risk sort of patients and doing all the right things to try and prevent them from developing delirium. So I did mention that it's really important to discuss with families and carers about their loved one who has delirium. So it's really important that we, we talk to them about it, that we use the words delirium and we explain to them what that means. So what I generally say is that, you know, that the brain just at the moment isn't working properly for lots of different reasons uh, and there are loads of different causes for that. Barry was talking about uh, why do we need to admit patients what, why is it sometimes our only option I say because we do need time for the brain to recover and that's why we sometimes admit people and, and it takes time for us to fully understand the, the whole picture so to, as I say it's a complex disease and not everything will be, is apparent on the initial assessment. Yet there is a risk of hospitalization that it can make things worse but we need to balance those risks. You need to get the care on board, as in they uh, encourage them to try and stay if they can. Again, difficult during COVID times, but you know if you can do that and facilitate that, that's important. Otherwise, using devices to let them contact the patient and encouraging them to reorient the patient, allowing the patient to sleep uh, and getting the, the, uh, the care to provide nutrition, hydration, uh, trying to reduce stimulus and as well try and limit sort of transitions of care. Nowadays, uh, there are lots of patient information leaflets and care leaflets that we can give to families and carers about, uh, about delirium that are helpful. One thing that's uh, Again, only not that for not that long. I've realised that delirium can last a long time. You know, it doesn't just go away after a couple of days. Even though we've done our best to treat the underlying cause, and delirium can take time to 
to reduce as in time several weeks to several months uh, and it's important that families know that uh, and that some patients certainly patients with co- some underlying cognition cognitive impairments they may never fully recover and that they may have lasting cognitive impairments as a result of this episode of delirium so i suppose that's pretty much all i have to say what i would encourage people to do is that thankfully nowadays in most of our emergency departments around the country there used to be someone who has a special interest in geriatric emergency medicine so i encourage you to have a chat to those people do get involved make sure the right processes are in place in your department to care for patients with delirium advocate for patients with delirium and to try and do our best to uh, ensure they get the right care Next up, we have Dr. Rosa McNamara. Dr. McNamara is an emergency medical consultant in St. Vincent's University Hospital, Dublin. Her interest areas are geriatric emergency medicine, clinical research and medical education, and she has a master's degree in gerontology from King's College, London. She's one of the masterminds behind Edith, which is ED in the home, where, as we alluded to in the case, sometimes the hospital isn't always the best place for patients to be treated. Let's hear what herself and Barry chatted about. Dr. McNamara, thanks very much for joining us on uh, the case report. We're delighted to be uh, sitting down to speak to you today. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. No problem. We are very enthusiastic to hear about the latest project in your department, uh, the ED in the Home programme. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So a little over a year ago at this stage, we launched a weekend project called the Wicklow Frailty Response Team. And our idea was that lots of patients in kind of more remote areas of Wicklow have no choice at the weekends but to call an ambulance. They do, you know, ring 999-112 and end up um, being conveyed all the way up to Dublin, up to Vincent's. And typically with something like a fall that required maybe some minor interventions and review for um to, you know, to ensure that there was no dangerous cause of the fall. So we had planned with the National Ambulance Service and with our allied health professional colleagues, our OTs in, across the hospital to um, run a weekend service that was funded by Slaunch Care. So that launched in February last year. And again, the idea was just that we gave an alternative pathway that patients could be assessed we would come to them instead. The functional assessments that were being done on corridors in the emergency department, perhaps not as perfectly as we wanted, um, were done in the environment that the patient was going to be living in. So it just seemed to all make sense. And we looked at other services internationally and we thought, like, this will definitely work for our Wicklow patients. So we set ourselves up. We're based down in Knock Robin and we were going about two weeks when COVID really started to hit in the community. And it became obvious that we needed to expand the service. So it took us a couple of weeks, but we expanded up to a seven day service running a slightly different model Monday to Friday, but always with a doctor and an OT or a senior clinician, I should say, in an OT in the car providing, you know, rapid assessment for older people who were, go, you know, who otherwise would go to the emergency department and also providing functional, cognitive and psychological assessments in their home environment. Um, so doing a mini comprehensive geriatric assessment and then signposting patients to services in their community or activating, I guess, the community resources already existed around patients to help keep them at home. 
So at the beginning of April last year, we um, were fully up and running for seven days with the ED regs from Vincent's, the OTs from Vincent's and with our National Ambulance Service colleagues in support and, um, you know, working with us at the weekend still as they'd always been. We weren't too strict. You know, we see patients who are frail, regardless of age. We're not ageist about it. Um, so we've seen people who are in their 50s who have frailty syndromes and we've seen people who are over 100 at home and and in nursing homes as well. And as COVID is, you know, I suppose as there's been many outbreaks in nursing homes, we've been able to help to support our colleagues in nursing homes, to work with our colleagues in public health as well, to um, help manage outbreaks. And then we've dragged colleagues from various different parts of the hospital, obviously from the geriatrics department, but also from infectious diseases, from IPC, our nursing colleagues from across the hospital to help us to manage outbreaks and to bring the expertise to the patients rather than them having to come to the hospital to access it. So that's been you know, a huge part of what we've been up to. That sounds amazing. And how, how do your patients access this service? So there's a few different ways. We're really lucky. We For the last year, our geriatricians have run a silver phone seven days a week. Um, so there's always a geriatrician on the phone. That's a service for GPs and other community-based healthcare professionals. So they can ring, look for advice about how to manage older adults, seek rapid assessment in clinic, or they can um, have the car activated and sent to them. Our colleagues in the National Ambulance Service can activate us to go to some patients, you know, so... We'll go to some calls that the, you know, for example, we'll go to 999 and 112 calls for catheter problems, for falls. We'll also go to scenes where um, the National Ambulance Service wants support to leave somebody at home or where uh, they have a patient who declines transfer, but they're worried and they feel they could do with more advanced interventions. And then we take referrals from general practitioners and we take referrals from the emergency departments and the medical assessment unit in our area. So, you know, if a patient has been sent home that typically wouldn't be, you know, that's maybe a high risk discharge, we can support that discharge with a clinical review at 24 or 48 hours. That's excellent. And how how has this impacted your, your own department? How, how has it changed uh, your kind of your numbers? So... It's rare enough now to see nursing home residents in our emergency department. And if they're there, it's generally because they really need to be there. So, you know, we've we've changed that threshold of you're only there if you really, there isn't another option. And it's important for us. We have 16 nursing homes in our catchment area. So it's, you know, there's quite a lot of people living with frailty and living in institutions in the area. So to give an alternative that doesn't require you know, an ambulance transport in, a long wait in the deliriogenic environment of the emergency department, and then another long wait for an ambulance back is worthwhile, you know, even that alone. So that has changed. Um, You know, obviously it's different for us because the ED regs and some of the consultants, we rotate through shifts out in the car. So we've much better links with the community. We know our community colleagues in the various different community organisations very well at this stage. And it's allowed us to develop all kinds of collaborations that probably we wouldn't have been able to before. Excellent. So, Dr. McNamara, how what are your figures like for the for for Edith? So, at this stage, we've seen over two thousand patients. I think it's something like two thousand three hundred at this stage, and um, almost ninety percent have stayed at home. Um, wow. And the mix of what we do, like. About 40% of all the patients are kind of generally unwell. So it'll be 
you know, non-specific or there's just something that's not right. About 10% of patients have new or worsening confusion or delirium. And then about 10% have got catheter problems. And then a quarter, our original remit that we imagined we'd spend all our time doing, about a quarter of patients have had a fall and it's a post-falls assessment. And the mm. rest are actually mostly uh, assessments for functional decline. But the interventions that come out of that are, are hugely varied, you know. So we'll have... I suppose we'll use the repertoire of things that you do in the emergency department. So the the useful things that we do are point of care ultrasound. It's great for, you know, for lung ultrasound, for those with COVID who are staying at home. But it's also useful for, you know, musculoskeletal ultrasound um, and particularly for bladder scanning, it being a particular uh, problem for older people, you know, um, with catheter problems. Hmm. Then we have near patient bloods. So we're able to do pH, we're able to do a hemoglobin and electrolytes. So that's kind of handy because you can fairly much know that you don't necessarily need to do further things. Do you know what I mean? Like if, yeah, if yeah. the sodium's fine, everything else is fine and clinically they look okay and they're mobilizing fine. And of course you can do ECG. So that, that allows us to kind of, you know, manage most patients. And of oh. the patients who do come in, then they go, like I was saying earlier, to all of the three sites. So um, in our area, so we've, you know, so we're and, and we're also able to refer people directly to rehabilitation to um, some of the sites in our area as well. Hmm. So they don't necessarily need to come to the hospital to access rehabilitation again, you know. Hmm. And what's your conveyance rate to the emergency departments? Our conveyance rate is about 9%. Wow. But that's all conveyance. So that will be to any of the three sites. But yeah. in reality, about half of the patients go to St. Vincent's and the other half, uh, majority, go to St. Columbia's Hospital with the rest of St. Michael's. Um, with COVID, obviously, some of the rehab facilities have been closed, but we've, you know, really good partnerships with the Royal Hospital in Donnybrook um, with Mount Carmel. So um, they often have taken patients for us when they're able to that need, you know, inpatient rehabilitation rather than an ED transfer yeah. again, you know. I suppose that must have impacted your department hugely. I mean, that's 2,000 patients that you've stopped that, you know, sitting in, a, in an emergency department, you know, getting a delirium. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, the way with all these things, you, you wonder, is it really? But you can see, like I was saying, there's, there's not as many patients who, for example, from nursing homes, but also there's not as many very frail patients who were kind of stuck in the department. Certainly we yeah. go out to more patients. So the average age of the patients we see is about 82. But like, for example, this week, our average age has been over 90. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and so in the last seven days. So, you know, it, it is. And maybe that's a couple of hundred-year-olds scuppering our notes, but, you know, our scuppering our, our averages. But, um, but you know, it, it just means, like, you know, these are people that really don't want to be in hospital and may not have access to care otherwise. So, you know, yeah. with in partnership with, you know, our general practice colleagues and community, we're able to keep people where they want to be. Fantastic. And how did you go about setting it up in the first place? I mean, if, if say, if any of our listeners are interested in maybe duplicating this, too, were there many challenges involved in setting this up? I have to say, like, you know, the project was always enthusiastically received, to be fair. We were very lucky, mm. you know, our main stakeholders are St. Columkill's Hospital in Lachlanstown, St. Vincent's Hospital, Emergency Department and Geriatrics Departments and the National Ambulance Service. So, you know, at the very beginning of this, we all sat down and said, look, look this model that we've seen work, we think we could do it slightly differently. 
you know, and we felt that if we brought the competencies of the emergency department out into the community, that that could, you know, reduce the need for conveyance. So everybody was happy to consider that. And then there are other things that, you know, we could convey to different sites, you know, so that meant we use the network of hospitals better. So we know in the morning where there are beds. So we're, you know, if we're out in the car and we see patients that do need to come in, in fact, we can send them to a hospital that we know has a bed. And it allows us to kind of cut through, you know, meeting various different people on that journey. It makes the journey is much more lean because the patient is handed to the team that are going to be looking after them and they're going to a facility that will have a bed. So they're not, they're avoiding the crowded weights in you know in hospitals that aren't ready for them yeah that sounds fantastic i mean we're all by this stage far too used to patients waiting you know hours upon hours upon hours to to get a bed up on the ward so that sounds absolutely amazing yeah Um, and the other like amazing thing is the hospital considers the patients even though they're in their own home emergency department patients so they have the same ability to access for example, next day ultrasounds that a patient sitting in the ED would, or they've the same opportunity to access clinics or anything else. So they're not disadvantaged by not physically being in the emergency department. Wow. Okay. That's that's fantastic. I suppose uh, we're all very used to, or maybe we're more comfortable in our own environment. So seeing patients in the resource room, I'm sure it must be very different seeing someone in their own sitting room. How is, how is it different it's definitely different. Um, I certainly, you know, it's not something we've done a lot of training on. It's not group of, or, you know, it's not part of our emergency training per se, although, you know, many of us will have done some pre-hospital work at some point. But I think the big advantages are, you know, we sometimes see patients, you know, particularly frail older patients sitting in a trolley. They've been stripped off in a gown or maybe, you know, they've a cut. So, they, you know, they've got blood on them. They're lying in a trolley. They, they look small and everybody looks small in those trolleys, to be fair. And we yeah. make judgments about people, you know, because we frame it around there. Whereas when you see somebody sitting in the sitting room with the fire on, you know, with the kettle on and you realize actually this person's functioning pretty well, you know, where it's hard to imagine that in the emergency department. It's hard to imagine when someone's stiff after sitting on a trolley for five or six hours. And we try to get them up and we're nervous about it. But actually, when you see them in their house and you see how they've adapted to their environment, how they use the environment to help to keep themselves mobile, then you're able to make better judgment calls. And the other really useful thing is you actually know what medications are on because you can walk around the house and have a look, you know. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. You're not relying on the next kin who thinks they might be on this, but not really sure. Yeah. And you can see the empty packets and you can see what's not empty as well. You know. Excellent. Um, are there any future plans to expand the program? So at the moment, obviously, we're we're living in our little bubble, which kind of goes from Dublin to down to North Wexford. So we kind of cover that catchment area. And, you know, we are hoping to keep that up. Certainly, we've been sharing our model far and wide to anybody who wants. And I believe that there are there's a team in Sydney that are going to reproduce EDIT2 or a version of it that fits with their healthcare environment and needs. So, wow. you know, but absolutely, I think it's, it's a model that you can easily adapt to, you know, your locality based on what you have, you know. So everybody yeah. has community services. Everybody has trade sector organizations that are working in the community. So it's really just pulling it all together. Amazing. And do you have any opportunities coming up for uh, maybe some of our listeners who are, who are interested? 
Absolutely, we always have opportunities. Um, <laughs> um, we're very happy that we'll have two um, clinical fellows in the department this year, so there'll be even extra support for anybody that you know is interested in working. But we have got, you know, we've got junior fellowship and and registrar level fellowship roles in geriatric emergency medicine and in um, in emergency department in the home. If anybody is interested, just make contact with us. We're happy to talk to you. Um, even if it's something you're thinking about for the future, you know, as they say, we're always hiring. Amazing. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. We've learned an awful lot there. It sounds absolutely amazing what you guys are doing. And yeah, thanks very much. No worries. Thanks, Barry. Our next segment, we have Mary Daywood. Mary is a nurse consultant in emergency medicine at Imperial College Healthcare Trust London. She has spoken nationally and internationally on the issue of palliative care in the emergency department. We're very excited to see what she has to say to Deirdre on the case report today. Good morning, Mary. Thank you so much for joining us on the case report. We're absolutely thrilled to have you here. Thank you for inviting me, Deirdre. It's a, it's a real pleasure and a privilege. So we wanted to get you on to talk a little bit about dying in the emergency department and specifically about providing a death with dignity for our patients. I know it's something that you've spoken about before at USAM, something that you've published on before. Why is it something that you think is important? Well, I think it's something that has been sort of not dealt with very well in emergency medicine and emergency nursing historically. And the, the thinking has always been the emergency department is not the right place to die. And, and and you can kind of understand that, but then, you know, it becomes sort of a thought process that has been perpetuated over, over the years. And in the last decade, we have seen a huge increase in longevity. We've also seen a significant reduction in hospital beds. And the reality is that more and more people are going to die in the emergency department. And we have a responsibility, I think, to make that experience as good as it possibly can be for the patient and for their families. I think, you know, to actually argue that, well, it's not the right place to die is a completely obsolete argument. We should now be thinking this is going to happen. It's inevitable the way life is. People will always uh, revert to the emergency department in, in a crisis and how can we make this better for patients how can we take responsibility for death in the emergency department and for making it a place that it's actually okay to die in yeah absolutely i i think i heard you say once you know dying is inevitable but a bad death is not yes. and i think that's a really important sort of statement to make and, and something that we need to bear in mind for our patients so what, what does a, a good death look like in, in your eyes, I suppose? Well, I think there's, there's, you know, a good death is something that the patient has to be the very centre of. And focusing on the patient and what the patient needs has to be the priority. And some of that may not necessarily be in what we would have considered a good death for all of us. Like there may be aspects of the person's faith or the, the person's culture that would be different to to others, but I think we have to be able to do everything we possibly can to ensure that that person gets what they would desire and what the family would desire in that situation. And so probably the very beginning 
of the process, communication is, is an extremely important component. So the very beginning process by initiating the conversation, do you mean? Yes, I think so. I think this is something, again, that we haven't been very good at, either in, in medicine or in nursing, of being really honest, truly honest with patients. And we try to skirt around the issues, mainly because we don't feel we can actually mention death or mention the likelihood or inevitability of death. But I think to actually get what's right for the patient, we have to be prepared to have these conversations, which are very challenging and very, you know, often very difficult for um, for doctors and nurses to, to to broach these topics. But I think we need to learn how to do it. Yeah, and I suppose, do you think that our current system of nursing education, medical education, do you think it prepares us for having these conversations, or is that something that we need to keep working on throughout our careers? I think it's got better. Mm -hmm. over the years, but I certainly don't think it's good enough. People, you know, even the the research around dying and in the medical research and the nursing research, actually the medical research in terms of the emergency department is very uh, scarce around death. Uh, There's very few papers. When I actually was looking to write up about end of life in the emergency department, I found so few papers in the literature around how to manage end-of-life care. There was a lot more in nursing, but the nursing was very much around, this is not the right place to die, you can't give the right sort of care, um, it's much too busy, our focus has to be on resuscitation. And there was some sort of similar talk from the medical literature around the same sort of thing. So I think we need to, that, that in itself is evidence that there isn't enough teaching on the topic. I think we need to sort of get much more involved and it be much more um, realistic about the inevitability of, of end-of-life care in the emergency department and make it core business. It's one of the components of training. Definitely, yeah. So to you, what does a good conversation look like when you're approaching um, these discussions with family, with patients themselves? What does a, a positive conversation look like and what are what are you kind of trying to discuss with them? What are the points that you're trying to reach? I think when it's inevitable that somebody is sort of at the end stages of life, I think the doctors caring for the patient and the nurses need to start asking questions like, I mean, there are certain questions that you can, it, the way you frame the question can open up the topic to the patient communicating with you. So, for example, you can say things like, in comparison to six months ago, how, how are you feeling now? Has your situation or has your condition got worse in, in your, your mind? You know, what's your understanding of, of the present symptoms that you've got? Have things got worse for you? Do you have any particular fears about what's happening now? Really sort of straight questions. Yeah. Um, and I think then that if somebody is is really, really ill, and if they are compass mentors and they do understand, you know, things are, are quite serious for them, then I think you have to even go further and say, you realize that you are very, very ill at the moment. And, and you know, there, there is a possibility that you won't survive this episode of, of illness. And then you can sort of you know, come back and say, we are doing everything we can. We're hopeful that the antibiotics we're giving you are going to improve 
things, but we need to know at this point what what you really want from us, what what's the most important thing to you now in this situation. So you get down to the the talk of dying. Yeah, and, yeah. and kind of appreciating the patient's core values and their understanding is is so crucial, isn't it? Absolutely. And you can sort of follow that up with um, you know, do do you have a, you know a faith or, or a religion that you know you would you would definitely rely on in this situation or is there any particular values that you and your family share in terms of your culture that you would like us to to consider now i think there are so many ways that you can open up this conversation that's honest and that makes it very plain to the patient that you are trying to create a situation whereby they can have a good death. Yeah, for sure. I think it, it can be a really daunting task sometimes. And I, I think we're quite poor at being direct and being honest in these conversations. It's something that I know I've struggled with in the past and I'm always trying to improve on. But I, I was listening to a, a talk by Dr. Ashley Shreves talking at um, SMAC a few years ago and she came to SMAC yeah. in Dublin and was talking about palliative care in the ED and she was describing a situation where, you know, she had a difficult interaction with a family member and she said, you know, I did what any reasonable doctor would do. And I, I didn't go into that room again because she didn't want to get into that conversation with the family member again. Obviously, yes. you know, jokingly, she was saying that, but it, it's really uncomfortable sometimes for us to to be in these situations. And I think we, we need to recognize that, that it's not always easy to have these conversations, but it's so, so important to delivering good patient care and, and respecting patient wishes and providing that good death, isn't it? I, I think so. And I think, I mean, there are there will be situations where it, it won't necessarily be the patient that you'll be having this conversation yeah. with because they may not be compass mentis, but the family, you know, and, and particularly if there's more than one member of the family who have maybe conflicting expectations of what medicine can deliver, that may be an even more challenging situation. So I think that my advice would be that you really need to prepare yourself before you go into these situations. You need to have the knowledge. You need to have some idea of what to expect in terms of the family. And, and if there is a lot of sort of conflict, sometimes it, it's better to actually get the family to nominate one or two people to, to engage so you don't have five or six people all throwing different questions and you can contain it in that way. But yes, it, it, it's, there, are, there are models out there, which I've sort of mentioned in, in my paper on the Spikes model of how to prepare yourself to, you know, to, to initiate these conversations. And of course, it's really important that it, this isn't done in the resource room where there's, you know, monitors bleeping, where people are running around, where the phones are ringing, where there's total disruption has to be done separately in a quiet area where the family can take in what you're saying. You know, COVID has, has thrown open some very sort of invidious situations where we've had to have these conversations on the phone. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And I think in some ways COVID has, has been beneficial in teaching us how to deal with these, you know, very challenging situations because we've had so much of it, particularly here in the UK where our mm. death rate has been absolutely dreadful but it's also taught us you know a lot more humanity and it's made us realize that that patients and their families really do appreciate 
honesty in these situations. And we've had to have these conversations over the phone, which are, are just dreadful and, and tragic. And sometimes on FaceTime and on iPads, like it's it's been, you know, very, very in an inhuman situation to have to talk to families who cannot be there holding their their loved one's hand and consoling them. But that has fallen to us. And this is, I would say, where we have sort of learned how to really engage with, with our patients. I think if, if you're on the phone, it's very important to, you know, speak very slowly. Ask, of course, is this a good time for you to talk? Are you, you know, can you talk? You need to speak slowly. You need to keep checking that they understand what you've actually said because they can't see your sort of body language or your facial expression and you can't see theirs. So you don't know if they've suddenly sort of collapsed into a chair in, you know, distress. So it's very important to keep saying things. Are you still, are you still listening? Are you still there? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and as I've said, I think COVID has taught us an awful lot more about being very human in these situations. It's probably not a situation we have ever envisaged or ever wanted to be in, but, you know, it's kind of the upside. It has taught us quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Un, you know, unexpected and obviously unprecedented in, in our yeah. careers for most people. You mentioned the spikes model, and I, I'll pop that in the show notes for, for this yeah. episode, but would you mind just talking me through it a little bit more there? Uh, you know, um, obviously you've, you've mentioned kind of the setup, which is the first step. and, and Yeah, it's, I'm just wistfully looking at the spikes. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's terribly, terribly simple. It, it's the setup is the one about preparing yourself with medical facts, who's going to participate, decide who's going to participate in the conversation, determine the location, preferably a quiet room, and then let other staff know what you're going to do. So you don't have anyone barging in, leave your bleep outside. You know, that's all about the setup. The perception is determining the participants' current perception of the situation. So uh, it's kind of, you know, get all the information you can before you go in there. So, you know, if, if you're the doctor who's going in to talk to the family, Ask the nursing staff who've been looking after the patient, you know, what's their, what do you think their expectation is? Uh, have, do they have any idea that, that we are ending, we are getting into the sort of end of life stage? And then invite them, the family, into, into the room to talk. So the Spikes model says, give, give a warning shot as soon as you get into the room, sort of, I, I have some serious news to tell you. You need to sort of, you know, open the conversation with a, a, with a very serious sort of nature mm-hmm. and then deliver the information in very small parts. Absolutely avoid any medical jargon. It, it just has to be simple, straightforward, honest conversation. But as you're telling them, allow time for comprehension. And of course, when you're nervous about these situations, there is a tendency to rush, isn't there, and sort of get it all said as quick as you possibly can. Yeah. Um, that's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to sort of, you know, small sentences. Your mum is very, very sick and just wait till they absorb that. Mm-hmm. And I say, we, we feel that there is a possibility that she's not going to come through this, that she may die and wait you know, longer for them to absorb this. Mm. Um, and then go into 
we are doing everything we can, what we are doing, and explaining it very simply, like we are giving her antibiotics, um, which may help, which may eventually, you know, work well enough to allow her to go back home if that's what you would desire, if that's what she would desire. But you do need to consider that this this is very much the end of her life. And we are trying to make this as, as you know, peaceful and as dignified and as comfortable as possible. And then the next uh, part of the spikes is empathising and trying to walk in their shoes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But it's also about you addressing their emotions and allowing people to be emotional over the situation. And, you know, if, if, if they're crying and upset, uh, that's fine. You know, it's also show a little bit of emotion yourself is very reassuring to patients um, to, you know, put an arm around their shoulder. I know at the moment with social distancing, we wouldn't do anything like that. But, you know, it, it's it's really important that we do empathize empathize but i think the important thing is is that we resist any temptation to make things sound better than they actually are to to stay honest the whole time on on how serious the situation is and then finally that the s in the spikes is to summarize mm. so what we've gone through is how unwell your mom is what you would like us to do for her how we can make things better what are your worst fears that we can manage? And probably the positives are to say we have, you know, we have plenty of drugs that will make sure that she's not in pain, that she's not vomiting. And I think one of the things that's really important is probably the most distressing thing for people at the end of life and for the relatives is the noisy breathing and the, you know, the noisy secretions that sound, you know, pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very important that we say to family. I know this sounds very distressing and you you feel that your your loved one is very uncomfortable. Actually, you know, those noisy secretions are much more uncomfortable for us watching on. Patients generally are not very bothered by them. Um, and there are drugs which we can use to to make that more comfortable. On Yeah, I think um, taking the time to explain the dying process, because it is something we're so used to seeing and you know it's it's sorry it sounds awful and I don't mean it to but it's so everyday for us that we we see people dying and we know what it looks like and we recognize it but obviously this may be the first experience for so many people and and to see a loved one in that situation so so just taking the time to sit down and say you know the breathing will slow down will become noisy etc etc yeah just explain that to them is key. Yes, I think I think the sort of chain stoke type breathing as well is terrifying yeah. for families, and I think that's very important to say they will take these deep breaths, and then and then you'll hear nothing, and and then another sudden surge. This is normal. Yeah, yeah, and the other thing I think that can be hard in these kind of conversations is silence. I, I as an emergency physician, I, I like action and I like doing things yes. and resisting the temptation to jump in and start talking again when, yeah. when sometimes you just need to leave a little bit of silence for, for family to absorb news, yes. process it and, and maybe formulate questions that they might have. You know, there's so many aspects of dying and people dying in the emergency department where you want to just rush in and, and do everything you can and it's not always the right thing. Uh, sometimes we just no. need to stop ourselves, don't we? And just we need to relearn a lot. Deirdre, Absolutely, I think. Yeah. yeah, it it is. It's it it has to be core business. 
And I, you know, I've I've had nurses and doctors say to me, well, I didn't go into emergency care to do care of the dying. I think, well, you know, that very much is, is now core business. Yeah. There is, you know, and it's so it's something we need to be good at. And we can be good at. Yeah. Um, and there's there's nothing more rewarding than to have, you know, a family come up to you afterwards and say, thank you so much. You you made it good for, for our mother. You made it good for our dad. We we were so frightened. We we didn't know what was happening, and you helped us. And that surely is is what you really want in any sort of interaction with our patients and and their families. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we need to, in some ways, reframe the whole thing in our in our own heads and just realize that sometimes doing nothing is doing the best thing, is doing mm-hmm. something, is providing a service to the patient and giving them what yeah. they need in that moment. That it's not. In action, it's just a different kind it's of action. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So for emergency physicians or anyone listening who wants to learn more about this or kind of develop their own skills in, in terms of dealing with death in the department, do you have any resources that you'd recommend? Or, or... Um, I, Well, the um, Arkham have just released a toolkit, which mm-hmm. is actually very, very good. It's the end-of-life toolkit. It's very simple. Um, it has a kind of a jigsaw, which is the, the, the central piece in the in the jigsaw is the patient. And then there's there's nine pieces in the jigsaw. So the, the top left hand corner is the patient's wishes. Um, the next uh, piece in the jigsaw is communication skills, symptom management, uh, continuing care, spiritual care, emotional care, legal responsibilities and post bereavement care. Hmm. And it addresses all of them in a very simple, very straightforward way. And there's some really, really good little tips, Deirdre, which I, I never thought of. And I, when I read, I thought, actually, I don't think any of us would have ever thought of that. Maybe you have, but I certainly hadn't. If there's a, in a situation where there's hemorrhage and there's a lot of blood and it can look, you know, absolutely ghastly to the family, they suggest using dark towels, dark red towels. And I thought that is such a sensible thing. I mean, I've never seen dark towels in an emergency department, but I think it's something we probably should have in a an end of life care pack. That if we were en- ended up in these situations, that you have sort of, for example, um, a massive GI bleed or um, where the, the tent it can be pretty bloody. Having dark towels would minimise the stark reality of the amount of blood that you would see otherwise on white towels and sheets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's sort of, as we were saying about really just changing the culture of the department and having that kind of thought yeah. about family reactions and, and holistic care in these situations. Obviously, you know, sometimes we always get excited about the big trauma or the big resus and, yeah. and, and it can be the talk of the department <clears throat> we, it, when, when these cases don't end well or patients do pass away. Are we as interested in in providing the family with appropriate supports and are, are we approaching that with the same enthusiasm and interest level and it's something maybe we need to tackle in our yeah. own departments and our and our own expectations our own kind of perceptions of death i think in in the uk now most most departments have a dementia room mm-hmm. and these rooms have been sort of designed in in a very sort of thoughtful creative way to be comfortable for the patient and they're a lot less clinically visible mm-hmm. and they're much more sort of homely and comfortable and I think if somebody is dying if you have a dementia room and 
that's an ideal place to, to bring the family in because there's usually sort of homely sort of fittings, nicer curtains, that sort of thing, um, less visible clinical things like oxygen on the wall, that sort of thing. So I think it's it's important to have the right sort of setting. If you don't have that, then surely you have a quieter room somewhere in the emergency department where you can bring the family and bring the patient and allow them all to be together mm-hmm. uh, with a door that closes so you've not constantly got the noise of phones and people, you know, running up and down, etc. But I also think that you have to be mindful that you can't just close the door and let them get on with it. It's, it's you know, you need to make sure, you need to allocate a nurse to be responsible for that patient and to make sure that they are accessible all the time to the family. It's also, some people recommend, and I think it's probably a very good idea, that you have some sort of symbol to hang on the door to let everybody else know that end of life is in process there. Some people use butterflies, but you can you can actually use any symbol that is understood and agreed within the, the staffing in the department that, you know, you're not going to be shouting outside that room or you're not going to be making a lot of noise that you respect for the fact that somebody is dying in there mm. and there is a family in there that are very upset and you know, need consideration and need your humanity and your, you know, need dignity for the patient and also autonomy for that person that's dying, that it's, 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 it's their, the biggest moment in their life. You know, we need to be very sort of cognizant of that and allow that person as much dignity and privacy as possible. Yeah, for sure. Mary, I think you've given us a lot to think about and a lot to reflect on. So we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And hopefully we can get you on another time to, to talk a little bit more to us. Thank you very much, Deirdre. It was an absolute pleasure. So that's all from the Case Report for this month. Don't forget to check out our previous episodes. They're all available on Spotify, Apple and all good podcast purveyors. And sure, give us a like and subscribe if you think we're doing a good job. In the meantime, get out there, enjoy the weather. And until next time, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.